If you were between the ages of four to the second grade, you're excused to kids' club. Or if you like acting like you're between the ages of four to the second grade, you can talk to Austin Shower. They would love to have you as a kids' club volunteer, no doubt. We are continuing on in our teaching series called The Table, recognizing full well that it's Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday, we celebrate that Jesus entered into the city, entered into Jerusalem. And as we've been walking through what is called academically the Upper Room Discourse, we, we've actually been preparing for Easter all semester. We've been preparing for Easter, looking at these words that Jesus had for his disciples as he prepared to leave them. As, as he'd walked through with them for three years, and he gathers together with them in an upper room to experience a final meal together. We remember that Jesus spent all this time with them, and we keep reminding you of that because the gospels taken in the concept of discipleship makes sense. Taken out of context, it seems like a lot of rules that we have to follow. For example, last week we looked at, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Taking in context, we understand that's Jesus teaching his disciples. Taking out of context, we think that's rule following. In fact, it has been said that the majority of Christians, rather than following an orthodox view of Christianity, tend to lean towards moralistic therapeutic deism, which basically is the idea that a deist is somebody who believes in God, but doesn't believe that God is personally involved in their lives. Therapeutic, meaning that God just really wants you to feel better about yourselves. And moralistic, we all have rules we need to follow. So that we subscribe to a God who has no personal interest in us, but just wants us to feel better about ourselves and follow rules. And it's actually really simple for most of us to fall into that because we like feeling better about ourselves and it's a lot easier to have rules. And yet that's not how God is presented in Scripture. And so as we come into this text, particularly at the last one, we're going to walk into John 15 this morning. If there's a part of this Uh, upper room discourse that's familiar to you, it's this one. As Jesus is going to walk his disciples into this really key clutch passage, most of us are going to be familiar with it. And one of the challenges to familiarity with the Bible is that we can tend to make it about what we think it's about rather than what it's actually about. So having walked into this text, we're going to take it apart piece by piece, probably more slow than we, slowly than we might normally do. But before we dig in, let me read the first seven verses. This is what Jesus says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned." If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This section of scripture is probably one of the earliest Bible passages I memorized as a young believer. 
In fact, I looked through the student Bible I held, and I've got pencil markings written all over it. And the fascinating thing to me is looking back on what I wrote in my Bible when I was 16 and 17 was a little shocking. Because I looked back at it and realized that I was a moralistic therapeutic deist. That when I came to this passage that said, abide in me, I kind of came to this position that I thought God's whole hope for me was that I'd have a quiet time, I'd sit down with him, I'd connect with him, and then I'd feel better about myself. So that I could go on in my day feeling really good about me. And so that my whole view of spending time with God was all about me. And not about anything else. So let's walk into this metaphor that Jesus gives his disciples. Because as we've been walking through this discourse, we've been finding that Jesus is challenging these guys over and over and over again to continue in the discipleship that he'd given them. To continue to follow him regardless of the fact that he'd be leaving. So John 15.1 says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He clearly walks into a metaphor. There's lots of explanations for this, but basically you should know that he walks into a metaphor that everyone in their culture would have understood. It's an agrarian society. And in fact, it wouldn't be common that most people had their own grapevine. And if you didn't, your neighbor probably did. So everyone in this culture would have had a very thorough understanding of what a vineyard looked like. That's why I'm showing you a picture of one. Because this kind of idea of these vines and the interconnectivity and the branches and the growing of grapes was something they all would have instantly cued in on. They would have instantly understood. And for some of us, it's a bit far off. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. And in fact, this is a big statement theologically. It's the last of the seven ego me statements made in John where Jesus, in effect, makes a pretty clear messianic claim. He refers to himself as the true vine. We find throughout the Old Testament that there's this picture of a, a vine as being Israel. In fact, Psalm 80, verse 8 says, And you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. This fulfillment of Israel is used throughout the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, I'm the true vine... They understood the difference when Jesus said, I'm the true vine. The reality that there was another vine or there's something else out there claiming to be a vine that was perhaps a false vine. There's a distinction made there. And if you want to make the distinction, the distinction when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, speaking to Israelites, he's separating himself out from the nation of Israel, which were a bunch of rule followers who didn't have the heart for Jesus. He says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. He's giving these identities for you as you understand the metaphor. My father is the farmer. He's the one that will tend the vine. He's the one whose job it is to keep the vine healthy. His job is to prune it, to cut it, to move it around, to do whatever is necessary to make it healthy. So Jesus gives us this illustration. In verse 2, he walks us into it a little bit. In verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, immediately, if you're a branch, you got to start processing this. Because if Jesus is the vine and you're the branch, there are not too many great options listed here that sound comfortable to me. 
And, and in fact, if God is a God who wants me to be a rule follower and feel better about myself, this passage instantly makes me feel a little squeamish. Because one way or another, I'm getting cut on. It seems the Father's job it is is to help this vine be fruitful. And so he blows out this metaphor. Again, everyone would have understood it. When he says, everyone that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now we've got to open that up a little bit more. Basically, okay, so I'm reading a theological journal this week, uh, just so you know where I'm coming from this. And it was fascinating because this theological journal started quoting this, I, I can't even remember what it's called, but it's a farmer's journal. Uh, and it was fascinating watching this theological journal and this farming journal go back and forth on how you grow something. Uh, and they come to this point of understanding that, that if, a, a, if the farmer is going to pick up a vine, he's taking it off of the ground, he's moving it off the ground. The idea really is that he's trying to move it to a healthier place. The only picture I have of this is in our backyard in Memphis, we grew hydrangeas. And from time to time, one of my hydrangea branches would get too heavy and fall on the ground. And it would, it would, the little part of the branch would get water on it and it would start to grow vines of its own. And we'd have to prop it up so it'd be healthy. This is exactly what the Father is saying he does to you. The Father's job it is, is to look at these branches and to move them to a healthy place. To move them to a place where they can be fruitful. And if necessary, to cut back the branches so that they can be even more fruitful. You start initially to see that the whole goal of the vine here is fruit, not happiness. It's fruit, not comfort. It's fruit, not me feeling better about myself. Now Jesus throws them a little bit of a bone because in verse three, it's possible these guys are going to be processing these branches being cut off. And he says in verse three, already you are clean because the word I've spoken to you. But Jesus makes it clear that this is a spiritual pruning, that God's heart and desire in this is to make you more fruitful, not just to shred you. It doesn't discount your salvation. In fact, the Father disciplines all that are his. And you see that, and you find it several times in Scripture. But most pointedly, you find it in Hebrews twelve six, where it says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son in whom he receives. The author of Hebrews writes this, quoting the book of Proverbs. And it's this basic understanding you find in this metaphor that God has a heart and desire to discipline his kids so that we'd be more fruitful. That if you are a vine, if you're a branch, he's going to prune you back because it's his desire that you would be more fruitful. In verse 4, He comes to the thrust of the metaphor when he says this, abide in me and I in you. See, that's the part I'd always highlighted. That's the part I'd always circled. I'd left the whole passage alone other than this. I felt like it was just about Jesus and me and me and Jesus. That Jesus' job was to make me feel better about myself and I cue in on that and I lead a pretty selfish, self-driven life. That's why we have to take it in the passage. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. So we have to put this back into the concept of discipleship. See, over and over, Jesus sent these guys out. 
He sent them out two by two. He sent out the 70, sent them two by two. These guys understood what ministry looked like as he would push them out. He would force them out and they would come back. And what Jesus is trying to get into them is this idea of remaining in me. Stay connected to me. Be a part of me. And we start to find that true I be, true abiding, true abiding in Jesus, it isn't about me. It's about him. It's about me being connected to him. So I get the life that I need from him. So I get the hope that I need for him. So I'm connected to him. And so that it's his will that starts to come out of my life and not mine. This hymn about this abiding is key. Otherwise, I become a moralistic, therapeutic deist. This idea of abiding means to stay in something. It means to live in something. So when Jesus calls these disciples to abide in me, he's telling them, continue to live in me. Continue to keep my discipleship. Continue to carry the promises I gave you. Continue to be faithful to the commands I gave you. You can't abide while you pick and choose what you want to do. So what does this mean practically for us in the 21st century? What does it look like to abide? We've come to this place a couple of times that if you want to be discipled by Jesus, you've got to spend time in your word. What what abiding really means is we've got to be pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that we're constantly drawn back into him the way his disciples were for three years. That as they walked out, they understood what he wanted from them. This week, I got a fascinating phone call. One of my former college kids uh, is a chef in Dallas. And he was walking into a situation where he was about to make a bad decision. He called me and said, Ben, I want you to know that I was about to make a really poor decision. And in my mind, I thought, hey, I should do this. And then the strangest thing happened. You showed up in my head. And you told me not to. And you explained to me why it was a poor decision. And I argued with you. And then I heard it again. And then and I had this long, probably 10-minute discussion with you in my mind. And I just want to thank you for discipling me. Because sometimes when I make poor decisions, I hear you in my head. And sometimes... I need to talk to you so I can be reminded, I can retune your voice in my head. To which I said, Luke, it's great. That's kind of the nature of discipleship. But brother, hear Jesus, not me. Don't just count on what Ben thinks you should do. That's the, the nature of pursuing an intimate relationship with Jesus is that we would pour over this book and not just on our bad days. That we really seek the heart of the Father. We'd really know the Son. So that when we dig into His promises, we can start claiming them. We can start praying over them. And when Jesus asks us to obey something, to understand that abiding in Him, remaining in Him, is following Him. It's that same picture that I have with my six-year-old son. Pierce wants to abide in his dad. He wants to live under my house. He gets to follow our rules. You don't just get to abide and do whatever you want. And this is the picture that Jesus has 
In fact, as we move on through this passage, obedience is going to become an incredibly key part of abiding. It's not just about me feeling better about myself. It's about me obeying. And that obedience will bring blessing. We'll see that as we continue to move forward. But you can't abide in Jesus if you're not pursuing him. If you're not having and engaging him and getting to know him on a, on a daily basis in a regular way. So as a shocking pastoral application, read your Bibles. In fact, I say this every uh, Palm Sunday. This is a great week to read the Easter account. As we walk into Holy Week, we recognize that some really incredible things happened this week 2,000 years ago. So read your Bible. It's a great week to dig in. And in fact, there, I will put up there on the screen the four basic Easter texts of the week. Sometime this week, grab Matthew 21 through 28 or Mark 11 through 16 or Luke 19 to 24 or John 12 to 21 and dig in on it. Get a sense of what all is happening this week as Jesus is approaching the cross, as he's instructing his disciples before he leaves them. Cue in on that. Verse 5, Jesus reminds him again, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus reminds them again, I am the vine. I am your life. I am your nourishment. I'm everything that you need. If you want to bear fruit in your life, cling to me. If you want to bear spiritual fruit in your life, cling to me. Then he gives you the negative. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is Jesus talking. If we're not pursuing him intimately, we're not getting to know him, we're not pursuing him, we're not remaining in him, we shouldn't be surprised that we don't see spiritual fruit. Because in fact, he says, you'll do nothing apart from me. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And as I walked through the theological and the agricultural journals back and forth, it, it told me that the first one in chapter or in verse 2 is kind of a spring pruning, where you would take a plant and you'd prune it back to, so it would yield more fruit. And this verse 6 is more of a fall pruning, where you'd go to your branches and you'd, you'd see what had died, what had not made it through the year, and you'd clean up your plant so that it would be healthier. And we have to hold on to that reality, that, that Jesus wants to tend us like a garden, and he wants to cut back on us. So if you feel and you walk through seasons where you wonder if you're being pruned, know you're being pruned because he loves you, that he disciplines those he loves. It's the truth of our Bible. And he expounds more on his metaphor in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus says, by abiding in me, by pursuing fellowship with me, by digging in with me, by knowing my word, by writing my word all over your heart, 
by abiding in me, trusting in me, hoping in me, and obeying me, by this the Father is glorified. That God receives glory in our obedience. He receives glory when we find ourselves in Him. He receives glory when we are most satisfied in Him, as John Piper would say. And when we're abiding in Him, not only is God glorified, but two other things happen according to this passage. One, when we abide, God is glorified. Two, when we abide, we'll be fruitful. And as a byproduct of giving God glory and bearing fruit, it also be proof to the world that we belong to him and that we follow him. That's the metaphor he gives of I am the vine and you are the branches. You might ask yourself, what does it really mean? I think it would be common. And he continues on in the rest of this passage to kind of expand further to step away from the metaphor and explain it in some other ways. In verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. Follow me, hope in me, trust in me. And in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It's that connection of obedience to abiding that I think some of us really need to cling to. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abided in His love. And you see that same example. One of my favorite quotes from the Scriptures come from a, well not from the Scripture, one of my favorite quotes comes from a man named Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century uh, French mathematician, physicist, inventor, and a writer. He also was a Christian philosopher. Uh, one of my The interesting thing is he was reading and reflecting in the Psalms, and in Psalm 34 it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Blaze is reflecting on that and reflecting on what does it really mean to to find your hope in God? What does it really mean to find your trust in God? What does it mean to just really taste and trust in and lean on the Lord? And he kind of comes back with this statement where he says, Sinners lick the earth. That is to say, to love earthly pleasures. It's one of his pensies. And when Blaise Pascal says this, he's giving you the negative example. That if, if we want to trust in the Lord, we'll find God to be very bountiful. We'll find God to be very delicious. And when we don't, it's like we lick the dirt. We're hungry, and we lick the dirt as if it will be satisfying to us. And so he kind of points out the pointlessness of it. Just in this way to say, as Jesus is pointing to these guys, lean into the Father. Lean into my love. Abide in me. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Jesus says, pursue me. Know me and have joy. Then he digs in on what this looks like in verse 12. This is my commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. We found this in John 13 already. And you start to see that abiding in him is not just about knowing his rules and, and knowing his, his heart and knowing his, how much he loves you. And you start to see that abiding in him is not just about obedience, but that there's a relational component to him. That re- abiding in him requires us to love one another. It wasn't just merely 
And it so fights at our culture. It's not just merely that we would trust Jesus and then go on in a merry, self-focused life. It's that we would trust Jesus and follow Jesus and do what Jesus did and carry out the mission that he gave to us. And in so doing, we would abide in him. He continues on to give the example, greater love has no one than this, that someone should lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. And you got to see all of this given in the context of discipleship and given in the context of abiding. For if we're to abide in the Father, it's not just to know what he said is true. If you remember last summer, that's how we defined faith. Faith is knowing what God says is true and then living like it's true. That faith has that obedience component to it. That it's not just an orthodoxy, a right belief. It's an orthopraxia, a right belief that's lived out. And that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to do when he says, abide in me. He says, trust me, walk in me, live in me, obey my commandments, show the world the love that my Father has for you. Stay connected to me and live in me. Jesus is instructing his disciples the very ability that they're going to have to continue to go out. And that's why when these 11 men in the book of Acts and in other places, when they start going out into the world, that's why they were successful at what they did in loving the world. Because they stayed connected to Jesus. And they stayed connected to the Father. They abided in Him. And He bore great, tremendous fruit because of it. Friends, when we come to this passage in John 15, the instruction point to us ought to be to pursue Jesus Christ with our lives. To get to know his word, to study him, and to obey it. And as we pursue him and obey his word, that he'll make us fruitful. And we'll start to understand and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And the challenge that exists, if you stop and look at your life and say, I don't produce spiritual fruit, that you'd look back in this and say, what does abiding really mean to me? Is abiding just me pursuing God to make me feel better? Or is abiding me pursuing the heart of Jesus and so doing, knowing the heart of the Father and knowing the heart of the Son and knowing the heart of the Father that I would obey their commandments, that I would trust that what they said was good for me, and that I'd be blessed by my obedience. That's true abiding, according to John 15, that we'd pursue our lives in in intimacy with him, and we'd pursue our lives in obedience to him, and that as apart from that, we would bear fruit. Jesus challenges these guys as they move forward to continue to remain in him, to find their nourishment in him, to find their hope in him. And in so doing, they'd be able to continue to live out the mission that he gave them to do.
And the same is true for us. Let me pray. Fathers, we look at your word. There's so many different ways that Satan wants to tell us lies. Father, there's so many different ways that Satan wants to mislead us. He wants to tell us we're not good enough. He wants to tell us we can't accomplish things. Father, that's the very reason we, as believers, have to root ourselves in your word, your text, your Bible, so we'd understand your heart. Father, I pray that you would give us as a church a deep and a sweet intimacy with your son, that as a church, we'd all be pursuing him, not half-heartedly, Lord, but wholeheartedly, that we'd dig in on your truth, we'd seek to know you and to know your heart, believing that what you've said about us is true and trusting in you to be everything that we'll need to walk into the days we have and trusting in you that what you said is true so that as you put commandments before us, you ask us to obey, that we do it so we could better reveal the Father to the world. Jesus, you poured out your life into these 11 men. And in your final moments, you spoke words of truth and life into them to commission them on to be your disciples. Father, those words are just as true for us. That if we're going to continue to be your disciples, we're going to have to dig into your word and trust you and believe you and remain in you. Give us the strength to do it, Lord. Amen.